Father, I think about when we sang about turning our eyes to you. The first thing I think about as I lead us in prayer this morning is forgive us when we look everywhere but you. And I pray that you would turn our eyes to Jesus today. May we see Jesus, the living word, as he's presented in the written word of God today. And then may the Holy Spirit apply the things that we learn into the situation where we find ourselves. May we not divorce this time from real life, as we call it, but may we take what we learn in Sunday school and what we learn and experience here worshiping you now into everyday life, Monday through Saturday, for the glory of God. We pray that you would transform us by the renewing of our minds. We have so much junk put into our minds by this world, and we pray, Lord, that we would be transformed by having a renewed mind. May we think differently when we leave than we did when we came in. May we approach our problems, our trials, our situations, our difficulties differently than the world does. Help us to remember what we learned in our Sunday school lesson today. You are faithful and you don't need our help. And Abram and Sarah, I thought that they could help you out and and facilitate your work. And yet Jesus said that we can't do anything in the flesh. The flesh profits nothing. But we thank you, Lord, that your words are spirit and they are life. And so we pray that the Holy Spirit would speak the word of God into our life, into our situations, that we would calm down, that we would wait upon you, that we would trust you and walk by faith and not by sight or even worse, to walk by our feelings. Lord, we trust you and we do lift our eyes to you today. Do what pleases you the most. Glorify your name in the hearts of lost people here today by drawing them to salvation. Glorify your name in the hearts of saved people by taking their eyes off of everything else that worries them, that bothers them, that distracts them, and let them rest and let them have a little foretaste of heaven by giving them peace in their heart today. And I pray that you would bless them, feed their souls, and may it all be, as we say, for the glory of the Lord Jesus alone. So, Father, bless this time and bless your people. And thank you for this opportunity to speak to you. We don't get an opportunity to speak to very many important people very often. And yet we can come to you anytime, anyplace, anywhere with any need that we have. Thank you so much for that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's uh, take our Bibles and let's go to the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John. And uh, we're going to pick up on a story that is extremely familiar. Now, my experience in over 30 years of preaching and teaching the Word of God is we tend to miss the point more on familiar stories than we do the unfamiliar. The unfamiliar, we go, what, who, when, where, how? And it kind of perks our ears up. But when we get to something like this, the feeding of the 5,000, we kind of go, I know that, I've heard that, I've known that since I was in nursery, and uh, I, I think I know everything that we need to know out of that. Well, we want to show you today that as we look at this whole, they call it a pericope uh, of Scripture, this section of Scripture here, that the point of it is not, well, a lot of people would look and say, isn't that nice Jesus cared about hungry people? Well, he does care about hungry people, but that's not the point of the story. 
Some people might say, well, isn't it nice that he would take a little boy's lunch and do something great with it because God does great things with small things. Well, he does, but that's not the point of the story. And when you uh, want to know what the point of the story is, well, just wait till we read the entire section of Scripture and you'll see at the end what this is. This is called a sign, another one of the signs about Jesus. So we're calling this more than a meal, <clears throat> feeding the 5,000. More than a meal. And by the way, uh, this picture on there, that uh, is a picture that I took actually on the Sea of Galilee. Thank you once again for sending us on that trip. But that's what it looks like when you're out on the Sea of Galilee. It's actually a lake. It's a freshwater lake. It's quite deep. And uh, it's, it's not a, a, a huge body of water, but it is very, very big. And the storms can come from the hills that you see in the background there and uh, cause some trouble. But uh, that's also... Probably, we don't know, the Bible doesn't identify where Jesus did this miracle, but it would be somewhere around there, and it would look something like that. Okay? So let's read the scripture now, and let's go to uh, John chapter 6. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Tiberius was a Roman emperor, and uh, they named it after him as well. And remember, John's not just writing to Jews, he's writing to Gentiles as well. So that's why those explanations are there. Verse 2. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. Look at verse uh, 3. And Jesus went up on a mountain, on the mountain, and there he met with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward them, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Philip lived in that area, so he would know. And then it says, verse 6, But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. It was never in question. Verse 7. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? And then Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, uh, uh, sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, some uh, other gospels say bless them. He distributed them uh, to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down. And likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by uh, those who had eaten. 
Then those men, when they had seen the, here it is, the sign that Jesus did, they said, this truly is the prophet who has come into the world. May we pray together? Lord, as we look into this, don't let a familiar story just cause us to assume we understand this. This is not so much about loaves and fishes and hungry people and leftovers. It's about Christ. It's about the God that we serve. It's about the one that we trust. It's about the one that works in our lives. And he not only saves us and takes us to heaven, but he also works in our lives in the everyday things of life, the things that we struggle with the most. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're a sympathetic high priest and that even today as we struggle and even as we fail, thank you that we have your sympathy, we have your compassion toward us. You're ever willing to forgive and you also are the one who corrects and you're the one who comforts us when we are in our darkest hours. So Lord, thank you that we can learn and know and rest in who you are indeed. Because that's the point of the story. Don't let us miss it. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now, we find Jesus where we saw him last. He was in Judea. He was down near Jerusalem, quite a ways down from the Sea of Galilee. And uh, he had healed a paralyzed man. And that was not the big problem, as we've reiterated. It was the fact that he told the man, pick up your bed and walk. And that offended the Jewish leaders, especially since they were enforcing not Old Testament law so much, but their traditions and their commentaries on the law. And their commentary on the law said that if you on the Sabbath, if you pick up something uh, inadvertently that you weren't supposed to, then you have to make a sacrifice If you do it intentionally, you could be stoned. This guy was in danger of his life. And there were people that probably wanted to pick up stones and go after him, as you can imagine. And uh, so when we find Jesus, when he's confronted on all of this, remember we spent several weeks saying, I mean, it's almost like he hits the gas, man. He, He hits the accelerator and he goes after all of these people, very pointed and very confrontive on what he does. Well, what happened between that and now? Well, he backed off. He took his foot off the gas, let's say. And the reason that he did that is because had he pressed the point, uh, they would have probably stoned him or something like that. But that wasn't why he came, and that wasn't the way that it was prophesied that he was going to die. So he backs off. He takes his foot off of the gas, and then he heads north. And as he heads north, he goes back into his region. The northern region was Galilee. The southern region was Judea. Judea is where Jerusalem was. Pharisees, Sadducees, temple leaders, the temple itself. All of that was down around Jerusalem. Jesus goes up to Galilee. That's where Nazareth was. That's where he was raised. And so he goes up there to kind of cool things down just a little bit. He takes a trip across the Sea of Galilee and uh, he goes over into that familiar territory, goes up into one of those hills like you see in that picture, sits down and he meets with his disciples. Now, why is he doing all of this? Is it because he's afraid? Is it because he's nervous? Is it because he goes, wow, I bit off more than I could chew or this is going to turn into something bigger? 
No, it's actually not. In fact, uh, <clears throat> that thought leads us into what we are seeing in point number one. Jesus controls both time and timing. Time and timing. Now, we're pretty good at time. We've got our phones that tell us the time. We've got clocks. We've got watches. All of those kind of things. And we generally know what time it is. We get up in the morning to an alarm that tells us what time it is. And uh, we keep a watch while we're getting ready for work so that we are, what, what time is it? So that we know if we're not at a certain place by a certain time in getting ready, we're going to be late. We uh, know how long it takes us to commute to work. Time is always on our minds and, and we have to have that to function. But God operates above time and above space. You remember in the uh, uh, New Testament it says that a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. There's a silly joke where this uh, man goes to the Lord and he says, Lord, how much is a thousand, uh, a million dollars, pardon me, in your sight? Oh, it's like a penny. Oh, okay. And um, said, how much is a thousand years like? And he said, oh, it's like a day. It's just, you know, no big deal. And he said, so what do you want, my child? And he said, well, uh, would you mind giving me a penny tomorrow? And uh, the Lord, you know, probably looked at that in a way that we wouldn't want to know exactly what would be on his mind because we think about things all the time. Blessings are always to us something material, and yet God has done so much more for us, and we uh, forget all of that. Oh, and by the way... Um, when the Lord heard the man's request for a penny, he said, Sure, I'll be happy to give it to you. Just wait a day and we'll see what happens. And so uh, that probably didn't please the man. And so there's so many times when, uh, and I mentioned this before our uh, service began, our problem is we are trying to get God to line up with us when God is saying, No, you line up with me. And with my will. And in this, Jesus is meeting with the disciples. And we don't know what he's telling them on that mountain. Uh, but you can only imagine he is teaching them. He is training them. He is teaching them to think like him. To understand what his agenda is. Now, uh, as he is doing that, the crowds that have been on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, they have apparently walked around. Probably maybe more toward the north side be a little bit uh, less, uh, a fewer steps for them to walk. And uh, so they come up and Jesus sees them coming. Now it's a big multitude. Now in the description in the first verse, it doesn't tell us how many, just a great multitude. In other words, a lot of people, a lot of people are coming up here to the Lord. They want to be around him. They've seen his miracles. They want to experience more of those miracles. And notice Jesus doesn't rebuke them or anything like that. In fact, we're told that one uh, one gospel that Jesus looked upon the multitudes and he was moved with compassion because he saw them as uh, sheep having no shepherd. And so when Jesus, being the ultimate host, he sees them all coming, then that leads him as we move on through the story to ask a question. And he asks a question of uh, the disciple named Philip. And uh, when he asks the disciple Philip, the question, he says, uh, you're a local Philip. You live around in this area. You're from this area. 
uh, where do we buy food? As if maybe for all of those people you go through a drive through at McDonald's, what do you do? And Philip, doing the math real quick, he says, uh, man, this, this is uh, going to be a tough situation because 200 denarii, denarii is a plural of denarius. What's a denarius? A denarius was the average uh, salary, the average pay that a worker would get for a day's labor. You know what he's saying? 200 days worth of wages is not sufficient for all of this. And 200 days wages is about eight months salary. And so you think about nearly a year's work wouldn't be able to feed all of those people. And if it did, it would just give them just a little. So there they are. They are by the banks of the Sea of Galilee. And then John points out uh, something that the Gentiles reading this would understand more than we would the Sea of Tiberias. Sammy and I, while we were there, we stayed in the city of Tiberias. It was built by Herod. And then it was named Tiberias in honor of the second emperor of Rome. Caesar Augustus in Luke 2 was the first emperor. Tiberius inherited the uh, empire after Caesar Augustus died. And so this is named in honor of him. And the Gentiles, instead of calling it the Sea of Galilee or Gennesaret as the Hebrews did, they called it Tiberias, the Sea of Tiberias. And so as I think about that, I think about even though Jesus is away from Judea and away from the temple and away from those who wanted to kill him there, just the fact that this sea was named Tiberias and John points it out gives us the clue that there was always a threat, always a danger. Rome is firmly in control and they don't want any trouble, not from Jesus, not from anybody else. They don't want anyone disrupting the peace or the status quo. And uh, Tiberius, by the way, was the one who was uh, on the throne in Rome as the Caesar of the empire when the Lord Jesus was crucified. And so it's not by accident that he kind of sneaks that in on us, and the Gentiles, of course, of that day would get it, but we need to get it too. Always a threat, always somebody trying to raise their fist up to God and to Jesus and say, we're in control and you'll do as we say, as we want. And yet we find that Jesus here is in perfect control of everything that is going on. Was it an accident that they were where they were when this story takes place? No. Was it an accident that those people, those crowds of people, were coming to find Jesus because of his miracles? No. Was it an accident that a little boy was there with a sack lunch that his mother had made him that day? No. None of this is an accident because Jesus is in control of the whole thing. When Jesus gets ready to die, you can read in John chapter 17, in his high priestly prayer, he says, Father, the hour has come. The time for him to die was there. It, didn't, it wasn't just that Jesus was to die. It didn't matter how, it didn't matter where, and it didn't matter when. No, specifically prophesied and planned for a certain time, a certain place, and in a certain way that he was to die for our sins. And so all of this is in the hand of God. You ever struggle with that? Abram did, as we saw in our Sunday school lesson. I mean, after all, God made a covenant with him and told him his descendants would inherit all of this land, and uh, yet Abram didn't even have a child. 
He had been told clearly it'll be a, a child from your own body. So, well, we can't adopt or do anything like that. It's got to be his child. So Abram and Sarah, after 10 years, they go, well, if God's not going to do something, then uh, we've got to do something and take matters into our own hands. And so the whole thing with Hagar comes about, as we saw this morning, because they couldn't trust and they couldn't wait on God. Any of you have any trouble ever waiting on God? And a failure to wait on God, listen to this carefully, a failure to wait is actually a failure to trust. So don't say, well, I trust God, I'm just not very patient. Then you don't really trust God. And so when we think about that, that's the point that we get in this first section. Jesus is in control of the timing. Wasn't time for him to die, wasn't time for him to be arrested, wasn't time for him to be betrayed. And so he backed off and he goes to Galilee. But at the same time, it was time for those people to come. It was time for him to test Philip. It was time for a little boy to give his lunch. And it was time to work a miracle. All of that is in the hand of God. And he does what pleases him. Our problem is we just don't trust him. And we don't wait. We get impatient. And we try to take matters into our own hands. And there's a hint of that here. That as uh, Jesus says something to uh, Philip, and the Bible tells us here that it is actually a uh, test of the Lord Jesus. It's just a test, I mean, pardon me, a test of Philip. Said that wrong, sorry. And uh, as he is testing him, Philip is thinking, I haven't even studied for this exam. What is this, a pop quiz? Well, I guess it kind of was a pop quiz here because that brings us to the second point. And I want you to notice something that is very relevant to all of us. Notice how John makes a statement. Now, it's a Passover, which is a feast of the Jews. Now, Gentile readers probably go on, what's a Passover? A feast of the Jews. Okay, enough information, they move on. But you and I know a whole lot more about this than probably John's Roman or Greek readers would know. We know the story of when the nation of Israel was enslaved for 400 years by Egypt. And we know the story that Moses was sent by God to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And we know the story how Pharaoh said no, made things harder on the uh, Israeli slaves. And we remember all of the plagues that came upon Egypt culminating in that 10th plague where the firstborn was going to die. And we remember the story that Moses said, take a lamb, a young lamb, bring him into your house, feed him, take care of him, and kind of make a pet out of him, and then take that unblemished lamb, and you're going to have to kill him, and then you take the blood, this is what we remember, and you put it on either side of the door, and then on the top post, right? And that night, when the death angel comes, he will pass over you, name of the feast, when he sees the blood. And obviously, as New Testament Christians, we really focus in on that. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Praise God, the blood of Christ has been applied to my life so that I am no longer under condemnation of death, but I have everlasting life and I am welcome in heaven because of the blood of the unblemished lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. After all, John the Baptist said, Behold the what of God? 
lamb. That's a Passover reference. Now it's Passover. Now something that we miss when we think about that first Passover is the lamb, the blood of the innocent lamb did protect them. That's major point of the story. But did you also notice the point to where they were to take that lamb and they were to roast it? And then what were they to do with the roasted lamb? They would eat it. The sacrifice not only gave them life, spared their life, protected their life through its shed blood, but the sacrifice they made in that first Passover also nourished them and it fed them. I see a picture here when I look at this. The Lamb of God who is going to sacrifice himself for our sins is also the ones that the one that feeds hungry people and nourishes their soul. And you and I, in the same way, we trust Christ for our salvation, but every day you should be nourished by Him. You should feed on Him and on the gospel, dying to yourself, dying to your normal rights and yielding yourself to God and letting His Word and His power fill your life so that you are not only receiving the sacrifice, but you're receiving the nourishment that comes from that sacrifice as illustrated in the first Passover and loosely illustrated even by this story. The one who would die is the one who is feeding them. Jesus is the sacrifice and the sustainer of life. In him we live and move and have our being, the apostles tell us. And the only reason you're alive and breathing, the only re reason your body functions, the only reason you're mobile today is by the grace and the power of the Lord. And so Jesus is lifting up his eyes, seeing the multitude. Now, I'll insert here, the multitude was probably larger because of all the Jews that were present for the feast of the Passover. Maybe some of that multitude were on their way from Galilee down to Jerusalem, and they just met up with those other people who crossed the lake. But he sees this mega multitude, a great multitude, coming toward him. And then he says, well, where are we going to buy food, Philip, so that these may eat? And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Well, he always does. Why do we ever doubt it? What are you going to do, Lord? What are you trying to do? That, that's a silly thing. God doesn't try to do anything. He does whatever pleases him. But he does it his way, and he does it according to his timing, and there's the rub. What would you have done if you were in Philip's shoes? Well, I think I saw a McDonald's. You know, on the way over here, Lord, uh, maybe we could uh, take up an offering or something like that and we could get enough Big Macs to feed all. The I mean, what would you do? What would you think would be the answer there? And probably like Philip, we would remain speechless on all of this because Jesus has come across the lake. The crowd has come around the lake that they've walked a long way. They're tired. They're hungry. And whenever you uh, read in the Bible about wilderness, don't think trees and Daniel Boone. Remember, wilderness in the Bible is desert. And so they're in a desert area. There's not any vegetation there. It's, it's hot and it's bare. And there they are coming up to Jesus. And Jesus is saying, well, they've got to eat. This lake is 13 miles long and it's eight miles wide. They're doing it on foot. They're doing it in hot weather. And so uh, Jesus tests Philip with an impossible question. 
How are we going to feed all these people? What's your idea? Where are we going to buy all of these? Well, the truth of the matter is there was no place where they could buy enough food. That's an impossible question with an impossible answer. Now, why does Jesus ever put us in situations that are too big and impossible for us to handle? And the answer is so that we can see his glory and so that we can learn to depend upon him. Now, far too often, like Abram and Sarah, we get impatient, try to work it out ourselves, and it ends in disaster. But in this situation, let's give them credit. They waited upon the Lord. Nobody opened their mouth. Nobody had a lame idea on all of this. They waited, of course, upon the Lord in this situation. And the Lord always knows what he's going to do. He's never short. He's never scratching his head saying, somebody give me some wisdom. He never says, well, I would do that, but I don't have quite enough here. There's always enough and it's always sufficient. You can trust the Lord. Where can we buy bread that these may eat? In other words, he is setting up a situation where he has asked a question that only he can answer. He's got a need that only he can meet. And God specializes in doing that so that we can trust him more. He'll put you in a place where there's no way out but him, where there's no answer to anything but him, where there's nowhere to turn except to him. You know, we sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus as we did, and yet it's so easy for us to look every where else but Jesus, until he hems us in and puts us in a situation where we really have nowhere else to look. This is what's happening with the disciples. There's nowhere else to look but to Jesus. How are we going to feed them? I don't know. I don't have a clue. I'm looking to you, Lord Jesus. And that's a good place to look because he already knew what he's going to do. Let's go to number three. Notice that Jesus is not controlled or limited by anything or anyone. Somebody say amen to that. Because God is not controlled by you, by your willingness, by your reluctance. He's not controlled by your giving or your lack of giving. I mean, oh, if you only had a billion dollars, think what you could do for the Lord. That's not the issue. What are you doing with what you have? Be faithful with what you have. And so as we look at this, we find out that God, as he is working this thing out, it doesn't matter if there were twice as many people. The Bible says that when they sat down, they counted 5,000 men. Well, how many of them had wives? How many of them had children? How many of these were family members? We don't know. Some scholars say that it's probably somewhere around 20,000 people that were gathered on that hillside. 20,000. Now, how are you going to feed them? What are you going to do with all those people? Well, Jesus, of course, has the plan. And so Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, who's always bringing people to Jesus, he says, hey, Lord, there is one thing here. I don't know what you're going to do with it, but there is one thing here. Here's a little boy, and he brought his lunch. His mother probably prepared it that morning for him before he, uh, he left. It's got five barley rolls in it. Now, barley rolls were not the best rolls. That's not the bread that any of them prepared. They like bread made out of wheat and that type of thing. Barley was the bread of the poor. Barley was, the rabbis called barley, it's just food for beasts, for animals. 
So to make bread out of it, it wasn't the, the best thing. So this little boy was probably poor. What kind of fish was on it? Well, the text here says they were small fish. And the Sea of Galilee was teeming with little bitty fish about the size of sardines. And uh, it was common for the Jews to catch those. And then they would either dry them, maybe smoke them, I don't know, or pickle them. Okay, so here's your uh, lunch after we get through. Get some uh, bad bread and put some pickled sardines on it. That, that's what this was. That's what this was. And so uh, then Andrew asked the question, but what is so little among so much? And that's what the question has been throughout history for the followers of Christ. We've always been in the minority. We always will be. Jesus said there's a wide gate, a broad gate, and a narrow gate. And you've got to enter through the narrow gate. And he said, few there be that find the way. And yet nothing like Christianity has had such an impact on this world and on our culture as have we. So few among so many. Who builds hospitals? Who built the educational institutions? Who uh, carried out prison reform? And all of those kind of things. If you go back and you look, going all the way back to Middle Ages Europe, it was always Christians who were doing these kind of things. Christians were treating the lepers. lepers. Christians were the ones that were helping the poor. Christians were the ones that called for reform and uh, all of these kind of things in society. Uh, God has always done his best work by taking the few and working among the many. That has always been the question. We never had the influence of Hollywood. We never had the money of this world. We never had the influence politically that we would like to have. But never discount who you are and who the church is in this world. We are salt and we are light. And our light shines for the glory of God. And God does great things through the few and through the little. And in this situation, that's exactly what he's going to do. He's going to take a lunch. And it's not even a good lunch. It's a poor man's lunch. It's a boy's lunch. And he takes those barley loaves out. And he takes those little sardine-like fish. And he feeds 20,000 people. You ready for this? And has leftovers. Leftovers. I mean, this is an amazing, amazing thing. And we notice as we read through all of this, it did indeed get their attention. This is something that caught people's attention. Now, some of it was negative because we find out later on in the Gospels that there were certain people who followed him just because he fed them. Hey, you know, if I follow this guy, I'll never have to work another day in my life. Got plenty of food and we'll follow him for the food. Not because he's Lord, not because he's a Messiah, but because he gives out free meals. But at the same time, look what it did. It brought certain people, as we see in this text, to an understanding of who Jesus is and how he fulfilled prophecy. And this was an attention-getting situation on here. There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they among so many? So this is... The situation, it always looks that way, always seems that way, and it always feels that way. What am I supposed to do? How can I possibly do anything? How can this situation be fixed? I'm in a situation that I can't handle. It's bigger than I am. And by the way, 
Whoever told you that God will never put you in a situation that you can't handle, uh, they lied to you. He does that all the time. And he does it so that you, like Philip, might depend on him and might see his glory when it takes place. Now, it does say you're not tempted above what you're able to bear. In other words, you never have an excuse for falling into sin. Never, 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 never. He always provides a way of escape that you may endure it. But you'll find yourself in situations throughout your life that are always things uh, bigger than you so that he might be able to show his glory through you. Now that brings us to the next point here. Jesus breaks in order to bless. Now I don't like to be broken. I don't like to go through a breaking process and yet it is always through breaking that something great happens for example when the woman came with the uh, uh, container of valuable costly perfume to put on Jesus feet Jesus actually commended that didn't he but until the box is broken no perfume comes out and the same thing is true in your life until you are broken, no perfume comes out. And God wants to perfume this world with the Holy Spirit as he lives and works through you. And it's in your times of brokenness. It is in your times of barrenness. It is in times when life doesn't make sense that the perfume of the Lord comes out of our lives. And yet we try to bandage everything up, keep everything together. We don't want any kind of brokenness, no kind of vulnerability, nothing that says we can't handle life, we can't handle situations. We like to always have the answers and always fix things, and we need to quit because it's through brokenness that the beauty actually comes out. Well, think about from the perspective of these sandwiches that a mama had made for her boy that morning. And Jesus takes them out, and he gives thanks for them, and uh, he actually blesses them, uh, some other gospels say. And what happens when something gets blessed? Let's just think of it like this from this story. When something is blessed and broken, it produces more than is humanly possible. And if you want your life to produce more than is humanly possible, you're going to have to be not only blessed by God, but you're going to have to be broken by God. Jesus most likely prayed the traditional Hebrew prayer that said, Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And then as he did that, he broke them. And as he broke them and started handing them out, he just kept breaking and he kept breaking and he kept breaking and he kept breaking and he kept breaking. And, kept breaking. and about that time, don't you know, there was somebody that said, Something, something weird's going on here. Can you imagine? But it is through the breaking and the blessing that he really does something incredible. And that same thing is true in your life and in my life as well. And uh, so if you want to be blessed, it probably means you're going to be broken. Are you willing? Are you ready? That's the point where God uses you the most and yet that's the point we back away from. That's the point we try to avoid. And that's where we need to be. Broken and humble before God. Useful in his hands. Blessed by him to do far more than is humanly possible. Let's look at a fifth thing here. Let's consider this. Jesus turns a test 
as it says in verse 6, into a testimony. Something happens now that through the test that he laid out before Philip, and then he solves the problem himself, and that gives glory unto the Lord Jesus Christ. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing is lost. And therefore they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets. Well, what a coincidence. There were twelve disciples. You see, in those days, there was a kafinos is the word, and it means a, a small bottle-shaped basket, and uh, probably they could have attached it like to their belt or something like that. And uh, almost every Jew carried those whenever they traveled. And inside, there may be food, because after all, Jews are supposed to eat a kosher diet. And so you don't want to just take off without any food. You've got to have your food in there. There was probably something for a bedroll for them to sleep on. In fact, they even uh, carried uh, a little bit of hay with them. And sometimes it said that they would use that hay and maybe pile it up and make a pillow or something like that. Other times they would take that hay and they would use it to start their campfire. It was a very practical, useful thing. We might think about like a Boy Scout or a military backpack or something like that that has the things in it that are needed to make the journey. Well, no self-respecting Jew would go anywhere without taking their kafinos, without taking their basket with them. And that's the baskets that uh, all of them filled up. They weren't great, big, huge baskets that they would have to carry. How would they carry that uh, on their journey? That would be very, very impractical. And so they had these baskets where they could put this food in there, and they had leftovers that they could uh, eat along the way. They didn't know when they were going to have the availability of food. Well, now it's been provided for them and provided by, of all things, a little boy's lunch of barley rolls and sardines. And yet, as they feed all these people, the Bible says here, they ate until they were full. That was amazing. Nobody was full back in these days. Back in the days in which Jesus lived, most people were poor. Most people did not have enough to eat. Most people were just barely getting by, feeding their family. And you had to share your food with your kids. And you know how much kids can eat. And uh, it was always a tough, tough time. And the only time they really were full or gorged, as we are, would be during a feast or something like that. But that was extremely rare. Most of the time... They went to bed hungry. Most of the time they were grateful just to have daily bread in order to keep them alive. And by the way, when you think about this, this emphasis on the bread, you remember back in, um, what chapter was it, where Jesus turned the water to wine and now he provides bread for all of the people and you kind of see a little bit of a picture of the elements of communion in all of that and it's happening right about the time of the Passover and Jesus of course is the Passover lamb and the Lord's Supper and all of that that takes place uh, not at this point but a little bit later on a lot of symbolism that you uh, see in here so these five barley loaves and the uh, fish that are here are spread out they're put into the coffinos into the baskets that these uh, disciples would carry and this is a, an actual sure enough 
miracle. It's a real thing. This really, really happened. A real Jesus with real disciples, with real people, with a real multitude, with a real little kid, with a real little kid's lunch. And Jesus prays over it, breaks it, blesses it. And all of these people are filled. And then real disciples with their real baskets take away the leftovers and they take what was left. And you know what people would probably say to something like that? Wow, that was incredible. And can you imagine some guy walking by and he belches and goes, whew, I haven't been that full in a long time. I mean, this is an amazing thing, especially for that time and that place. Who has that kind of power? Who has that much food? Who, could, who would share that much food? You normally would hoard it or something like that. So it was a wow moment, but it, but it wasn't the point. Not the point at all. What is the point? People saw this and they say, this truly is the prophet who is to come into the world. What? Weren't there lots of prophets? Yeah, Isaiah, Hosea, Amos, Micah. Uh, I mean, think about all of the different prophets that come into the world, including John the Baptist. He was the last of them. But in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, this is what they were thinking of. This is Moses, quote, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. And you know what happened? Jesus fed people. It's kind of a small, well, this was a big deal because of the amount. But when it comes down to it, feeding people, a relatively small thing to do. This wasn't the kind of miracle like raising the dead. This isn't the kind of miracle like restoring a withered hand or letting a blind man see again or anything like that. But it was enough to where people went, wow, it was an attention getter. But more than that, it brought them to the place to where they said, this man is not just a prophet, this man is the prophet. And they knew what Moses had prophesied. You know what's happening? Eyes are being opened. Eyes are being opened. People are seeing Jesus for who he really is. And that's why the tests that come into our lives that are bigger than us, that are impossible for us to carry through, as we are faithful to Jesus, putting on our armor and marching on and following him no matter what, when other people see what God does, there are those times when they go, wow, that's really cool how that worked out for you. But that's not the goal, is it? Let your light shine before men so that others will see your good works and then glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now you know the reason why you went through that difficulty. Now you know why you've had trouble in your family. Now you know why you've had trouble in your workplace. Now you know why you've gone through that illness or that sickness that you've been through. Now you know why you've suffered through that betrayal and disappointment and heartbreak. It wasn't just fate. It wasn't just arbitrary. It was a test... So that as you remain faithful to God and things come out of that that nobody would have ever seen coming, you can give glory to the Lord and your test becomes a testimony before a lost and dying world. And not everybody's going to get it. Just like in this story, not everybody got the point. But there were some that did and they said, this is not just wow, 
This is hallelujah. This man is the prophet that Moses told us to look for. And all of a sudden now, they're watching everything that he did, and they're listening to everything that he said. And many, many people come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you like to be used like that? Would you like for people to see you? Well, you've got to go through some tests. And you've got to go through some brokenness. And you've got to live in the blessedness of God. And everything has got to be centered upon Jesus. This is not about how smart you are, how much you know, and how well you can figure things out, how ingenious you are, how shrewd you are. This is about how faithful you are as Christ works His will through you to bring glory to Himself. And maybe that's the problem. Maybe lost people look at us and they go, well, I know you go to church and I know you know your Bible and you quote it a lot, but do they really see the things in our life that can only be attributed to Christ like we saw in this story? There was no doubt. Nobody walked away saying, boy, that Philip sure figured out a great thing. Boy, he's talented, isn't he? Man, that Andrew's got a network and boy, talk about a marketer there. Nobody said that, did they? They walked away saying, wow, this is the prophet that Moses told us to watch for. Praise God, and if only our lives could be used in that same way. Amen? Father, we bow before you because we think that you're interested in our talent. You're interested in our ability and our intellect. You're interested in what we can do for you as if you don't have hands and you don't have feet, as if you don't have any power unless we do something for you. And the truth of the matter is you don't need anybody to do anything for you. You are God. And I pray, Lord, that when we come into these wonderful opportunities brilliantly disguised as impossibilities, may we look to heaven. May we look to your word. May we remain faithful. May we wait on you. And may you do things that not make people just simply say, wow, but make people say, what a great God you serve. And come to know Christ as our Savior and Lord. Let us see the purpose in our struggles, the purpose in our trials. Not just to get through them, not just to get to a better life in a better way in an easier thing, but to bring glory and honor to the Lord by seeing you work in our impossibilities for your own glory. Thank you, Lord, and forgive us for being reluctant. In Jesus' name, amen.